Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 42, Postmortem. Well, I'm finally done doing the post-production on the second part of my discussion with Michael Burgos, uh, in which we're going over the debate that he recently had with the Oneness Pentecostal. Um, so uh, since this is part two of that discussion, I won't do another promo and I won't do any sort of monologue, but just to remind you where we left off a couple days ago, uh, we talked about debates in general and whether or not they're valuable. We talked about some of our thoughts about this particular debate, including the fact that there was no really opening statement from Mike's opponent. We talked about uh, some of the feedback that we've gotten, including some minor criticism from uh, even Trinitarians who sided with Mike on, on the debate proposition. Um, and we ended with a, <laughs> a discussion about a listener named Manuel who had some pretty ridiculous statements to make about um, the Trinitarian position. And it was at that point that I said in part two we would uh, play some clips and comment on them. And that's exactly what we're going to do in today's episode. So enjoy. Well, let's start looking at some of the clips that you told me you wanted to comment on. This first clip is of James. He made a comment about God the Son being manifest in the flesh and whether or not that was something that the early church believed. I can say God was manifest in the flesh. Mike will have to say here tonight that God the Son was manifest in the flesh. I think that makes a big difference because that wasn't probably uh, the thinking of the early church. So, so what did you want to comment on this clip? It, it was, was, did the early church, in fact, believe that uh, God the Son was made manifest in the flesh? Yeah. Uh, the first thing is um, the text from 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, calling the Son God manifest in the flesh. Obviously, he's begging the question there to try to, to, try to say that uh, his Unitarian God is, is manifest in the flesh. No, you cannot derive that. And, and again, just like Manuel was trying to use the word spirit in a unequivocal fashion, James repeatedly tries to use the word God in a unequivocal fashion. Hmm. I mean, you just can't do that. Uh, the, I mean, it's, it's insanity to even try. Now, in regards to the early church, I don't know what James thinks he knows about patristic literature. <laughs> I happen to know a thing or two. And um, what he says is patently false. Right. Um, we can go to Ignatius, his letter to the Magnesians, which uh, dates around 110, roughly. I mean, some people push it pretty late, but generally those tend to be the more liberal types. And uh, here, here's an excerpt that he says, I exhort you to study to do all things with a divine harmony while your bishop presides in the place of God and your presbyters in the place of the assembly of the apostles along with your deacons who are most dear to me and are entrusted with the ministry of Jesus Christ, who was with the Father for the beginning of time and in the end was revealed. Hmm. Uh, obviously, he's talking about a pre-existent person. Right. Uh, later, he goes on in that text and talks about 
the incarnation slightly. Um, one of my favorite uh, early church writers, Melito of Sardis. I don't know if you're familiar with any of his uh, literature, but uh-uh. uh, it's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. And um, some of the stuff that he's written is, is just so rich. And this is a, a little excerpt from his Discourse on the Cross, and it dates back to around 180. He says, uh, quote, On these accounts he came to us. On these accounts, though he was incorporeal, he formed for himself a body after our fashion, appearing as a sheep, yet still remaining the shepherd, being esteemed a servant, yet not renouncing the sonship, being carried in the womb of Mary, yet being arrayed in the nature of his father, treading upon the earth, yet filling heaven, appearing as an infant, yet not discarding the eternity of his nature, being invested with a body, yet not circumscribing the unmixed simplicity of his Godhead, being esteemed poor, yet not divested of his riches, needing sustenance inasmuch as he was a man, yet not ceasing to feed the entire world inasmuch as he is God, putting on the likeness of a servant, yet not impairing the likeness of his father. He sustained every character belonging to him in an immutable nature. He was standing before Pilate, and at the same time he was sitting with his father. He was nailed upon a tree, and was yet the Lord of all things. To say that the early church didn't believe that God the Son was born in Bethlehem is an abject lie, Hmm. and it's unfounded. And for James to make that assumption, I think uh, it demonstrates um, that he's quick to make assumptions that he cannot substantiate. That, yeah, exactly right. You could also look at Irenaeus. Uh, he wrote in the second century that the word who existed in the beginning with God, by whom all things were made, was in these last days united to his own workmanship, inasmuch as he became a man liable to suffering. It follows that every objection is set aside of those who say, if our Lord was born at that time, Christ had therefore no previous existence. For I have shown that the Son of God did not then begin to exist, being with the Father from the beginning, but when he became incarnate and was made man. Um, So, yeah, we've got Irenaeus from the the second century. And and actually that kind of goes to something, which is that James said a couple of times in the debate that it was in the second century that philosophers, he feels anyway, started introducing the idea of personal preexistence. Um, but, you know, but of course, as you pointed out, Ignatius, he was writing in the late first to early second century, um, not in the time frame that James is talking about. But still, the point here is that I think when James is talking about the quote unquote early church, what he's doing is he's talking about the authors of the New Testament. Uh, so what he's doing is he's just assuming the very issue that's in question. He's assuming that the early, that this early church, that is the, the New Testament authors, um, shared his view. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you totally. Um, I would also say that uh, Polycarp, who is one of our earliest uh, early church writers or fathers, or however you want to characterize them, hmm. um, has some things to say as well so far as uh, God the Son becoming uh, a man. And so I, I think that, yeah, I think you're right. He probably was making an assumption based on the text of Scripture, but I think um, his statement was ambiguous enough to contain within it the non-scriptural, uh, but very interesting and very useful early church literature. 
Yes, that's true. That's definitely the case. I agree. Uh, There's another issue here, though, worth pointing out, which is that James seemed to be assuming that simply because some of these writers are coming from Greek backgrounds, like Ignatius, Polycarp, and Irenaeus, that therefore they've imported into their theology Greek philosophy, um, which is something he's not substantiating. And and, and what's more is, my understanding is Ignatius and Polycarp were both first or second-hand disciples of uh, New Testament authors, including John the Apostle, you know? You know, I've studied uh, Greek philosophy um, I've read some books. I mean, I'm no, by no means a philosopher. Uh, it's something that I, I got into a little bit uh, on a very cursory level. But even from the cursory level that I've understood, um, what you had in Greek philosophy and higher uh, levels of Greek philosophy was God as a monad, God as an undivisible divine being hmm. who is completely other, uh, who is so transcendent that he's unknowable. That is not Trinitarianism um, by any stretch of the imagination. No, that's definitely right. You know, uh, you've even got sections in the New Testament that are written specifically to address the objection people had to Jesus coming in the flesh because they couldn't imagine that God could come in the flesh. Yeah, now on a more, uh, you know, on your more, uh, you know, populist level, uh, of course you had... Uh, the polytheistic mystery of religions. Maybe that's what he's alluding to. Hmm. I certainly hope not, because Trinitarianism is fiercely monotheistic. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it would seem to me that, from what I've read of, of Greek uh, philosophical you know, literature from antiquity, Oneness Pentecostalism has a lot more um, in common than, than Trinitarianism, that's for sure. <laughs> Trinit- the, the doctrine of the Trinity isn't something that people make up. Right. Uh, just not one of those things. It's kind of like Calvinism. Nobody, nobody would ever make up Calvinism, and nobody would ever make up the doctrine of the Trinity. <laughs> yes, it's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult enough for us to uh, comprehend. Um, you know, there's just no way that anybody would have come up with it on their own. Well, let, let's move on to the second clip you sent me. This this has to do with something that James said about the grammar of Philippians two, which was uh, the focus in large part of of some of this debate. R.P. R. Martin, he was the, uh, he wrote the book Carmen Christi uh, of Cambridge University. He tells that there is nothing grammatically that prevents one from taking the position that the hymn describes Christ's abasement here on earth, nor is there anything of necessity in the construction of the strokes that demand a pre-incarnate son. There can be two stanzas in a verse, especially when we're talking about Philippians 2, 5-11, which is a hymn to the church. So, uh, so yeah, what was it that you wanted to say about this clip? Yeah, um, I think initially in the debate, uh, particularly during this segment, I didn't quite understand what um, what James's argument was. Um, it seemed to me in the beginning, uh, and I, in fact, I probably didn't understand it completely even until after the debate was over, until I reviewed it. Hmm. Um, but it, what it seems to me what he is saying is because this was a hymn in the early church, that it can be basically, um, the, the flow of the text can be basically ignored, hmm. and a break between the middle of the text uh, can be inserted so that the incarnation isn't given uh, any sort of chronological or uh, um, importance in the right. text. And I think that, look, uh, I <laughs> I would like to know where else in Scripture um, Mr. Anderson, you know, uh, uses that kind of hermeneutic, <laughs> because I think that's uh, 
would show the bankruptcy of, of such an assertion sure. pretty quick. Um, it, the, the, the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of scholarship affirms the interpretation that I provided. Uh, the historic scholarship of the patristic authors affirms, uh, in fact, what I just read from Melito, uh, you probably recognized, had a, quite a few uh, themes that were present in uh, the Karma Christi. And so yep. I think his argument was um, one that he was not really interested in committing totally to, because <laughs> I think he kind of knew how ridiculous it was. Uh, but he wanted to make it ambiguous in so much as mentioning Jason Duell's interpretation, who, what's really interesting is Jason Duell actually has a fairly sound exegesis, uh, of Philippians 2, 5 through 11 on his website. Right. The only thing is he doesn't, he actually makes a statement that, um, the text itself, the point of it wasn't Christological. Hmm. Um, and so I've, I've considered that, and I think that's just hogwash, but I've actually made a point of asking him, how do, how do you reconcile your exegesis of Philippians 2, you know, with your oneness doctrine of God? And he has never answered that question. I've asked him twice, uh, once by email and once on his website. And uh, I don't think he can right. reconcile it. So, so to say that oneness Pentecostals... Uh, uh, do take it the way that we take it, uh, which I think is the obvious, normal, and, and natural reading of the text, is a little bit disingenuous because he's the only one I've ever uh, read that, that does exegete it properly, for the most part, uh, but he never acknowledges that the text has a um, Christological significance. I mean, yeah, it talks about a virtue, but the the example given to exemplify that virtue is Christ. So right. obviously it does have a, a Christological significance. And if I may say so, this is one of the most um, powerful, uh, one of the most jaw-dropping, one of the most rich texts in the New Testament. Yes. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it is. And, you know, I had a clip prepared in which uh, James is going to talk about juxtaposing texts. I'm not going to play that now because I, I think that uh, it would you know, push things a little longer than they need to be. But I think that what James's view does is make Paul's point completely incoherent. Uh, like he's just sort of stream of consciousness uh, pouring out a thought. You know, I think the text is clearer and more coherent than James wants it to be. He says, he says in verse 7, Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Then Paul builds on that in verse 8, saying, being found in appearance as a man, so, so note there that Paul had just finished verse 7 uh, talking about Jesus' incarnation. And then in verse 8, he, he, he says what happened following the incarnation. Yeah, he would put a, exactly. He would put a, uh, basically, he would break the paragraph right there. And um, it's just, yeah, it's insanity. And, and I don't think any person reading the scriptures would ever come to that interpretation on their own. I think that's another case of somebody approaching the text with a doctrine to impose upon it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move on to the third clip that you told me you wanted to comment on. This had to do with some comments that James made about John seventeen five, where Jesus says, uh, "Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world be before the world was," uh, and something that James thinks is a related passage, Revelation thir thirteen eight. 
And given that context and them of John, we see that this glory is the glory of the cross. It's that completed glory. And it's, that's, that's intended in John's whole theme about glorification before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13 and 8 talks about the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. First Peter 1, 19 through 20, Jesus was the perfect Lamb slain. So, yeah, what did you want to say about this um, trying to connect the lamb slain in Revelation 13.8 with the glory that Jesus had before the world was in John 17.5? Yeah, um, well, first of all, uh, the case, when a Unitarian tries to make a case that the Son of God had only what is called an ideal pre-existence, or or in other words, a pre-existence in the mind of God, they inevitably are going to make it to Revelation chapter uh, chapter 13, verse 8. And the reason why that is, um, is because some uh, renderings of that text, particularly in the King James, and I believe the New King James, and a few other translations. The NIV, uh, for example. Right, the NIV, but the NIV also does put a footnote to the... There, there are two grammatical possibilities um, that are... Uh, possible for that that verse, and what that verse says that you know in the King James when you read it, it says yeah the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, but when you read that in the NASB and the ESV it attributes um, that which was before the foundation of the world to the names that were written in the Lamb life, hmm. and the reason why I I think that that is probably the better rendering has nothing to do with doctrine or Christology, but has to do with uh, something else that John wrote in the book of Revelation, and that is Revelation 17.8, yeah. which attributes uh, the names having been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And so, you know, from a textual, textual critical standpoint, and, a, you know, textual criticism is certainly not my forte, but it is a science, and it is to be approached as a science, um, and one of the main tools in, in doing that is considering other things that that same author has written. Right. And, and so I just find it very dubious and very interesting that the one text that James is running to has uh, the, the text that he's used, used there, uh, the, the grammatical possibilities are, are you know, multiple, and, and it's probably not what he's quoting. Right. Uh, so... That aside, I think, look, the grammar of John 17.5 is so clear. It is not only clear, it's emphatic. Yeah. And to try to explain it away with a uh, very surface-level plea to God saying that things that aren't as though they are, I mean, come on. (laughs) If we started treating other texts in the Bible like that, what could we come up with? Right. I mean, really, we could come up with some pretty interesting doctrines. And and no one, as I said in my original opening statement, no one is ever going to read that text and come to that conclusion. And so I think we have a case where, unfortunately, because of his loyalty to his tradition, he's imposing a doctrine upon a text. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that that is very evident. Um 
There's another thing, though, that at the end of this clip that I think is worth pointing out. James tries to link what he's saying to First Peter 1, 19-20, as if that passage also speaks about the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Um, but it doesn't. <laughs> All it says is that Christ was foreknown from the foundation of the world. Well, you know, that language, foreknown, has to mean ideal preexistence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, so now, before we move on to the next clip that you wanted to uh, uh, comment on, there was a clip that I've got that's related to this, and I want to play it and comment on it. Um, and it's where I ask you about an argument that James had tried to make to bolster his case that what is in the future can be spoken of as having been in the past. Let's, li let's listen. Uh, so um, if I understood James correctly, what he argued was that in the um, passage leading up to John 17.5, which was a key component of your argument, um, he speaks, he, he, he follows a model of prayer that was used in the Old Testament, which speaks of something in the future as if it were now or even in the past. Um, he even, uh, there in those passages, talks about the hour both coming but also being now. My question for you is, is do you see that language, both in the Old Testament and, and, and there in that passage, of something being in the future and now, um, as, if, do you see that as uh, allowing the glory that he says he had with God in the beginning to also be speaking of something that was at the time future but is now, in a Absolutely certain sense? Absolutely not, because what Christ is doing there is he's petitioning for something that he possessed in the past. It would be one thing if he was petitioning God for something that he's going to have in the future in some uh, ethereal verity, but he's talking about something that he actually had in the past in the Father's presence. Uh, so, no, I, I don't okay. see any license for that whatsoever. Now, just to add to what you said in, in answering my question, I, I think there's a real obvious error that James made in trying to make the argument I asked you about. James points out that in John 17, Jesus speaks of the hour both being in the future and now. And uh, he and James said that Jesus wasn't on Golgotha's heel. But if you take a closer look, verse 1 of John 17, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. And after his prayer, which takes up all of John 17, how does chapter 18 begin? With Judas approaching Jesus with the Roman cohort. Uh, so, in fact, even though the crucifixion was some time away, the hour truly had come because it was very shortly after that he was betrayed into the hands of the Romans who would soon crucify him. So it seems to me that James' whole point regarding this passage just, just falls apart. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I do see, and I, and I have observed for many years, that sort of language that is um, it's sort of pregnant with meaning. Hmm. and. You know, certainly you as a preterist can understand that kind of language. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's it's throughout the text of Scripture. But yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're exactly, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. And it seemed to me like anything that was going to be said about this text, um, you know, James was just going to, <laughs> going to try to grasp at straws. I mean, at one point he brought up uh, verse 24, John 17, 24, which talks about the glory that uh, Christ said he had been given, uh, be given to his disciples, hmm. uh, that they may be one as even one even as we are one, or something to that effect. Right. And so I think maybe what he was trying to say, well, look, if this is divine pre-existing glory. Then how could he have given this to his disciples? Yeah. And number one, this is an argument from silence, I think, because obviously seventeen five is not exactly contextually linked, uh, even directly, to uh, 22 and verse 22 and 24, because there seems to be an in intimacy 
in those first few verses, and then it turns in the prayer, it seems to turn to more of a an intercessory focus. Hmm. To where it starts inward to the, this more most profound, intimate prayer from the Son to the Father, and then it turns around and, and you know, is incredibly sacrificial because, you know, the Son knows what's going to happen and instead uh, spends his last moments with the one he loves praying for those who would only uh, betray him at a moment's notice. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, incredibly powerful text and it's a shame that James refused to uh, bend his knee to it, frankly. Yeah, it definitely is a shame. And, and, you know, it seems to me that when he tried to make the connection between the glory spoken of in the first part of that passage and the glory spoken of in the second one, that he's, he's equivocating as if, as if the word glory could only refer to, uh, one kind of glory. Um, you know, certainly that, certainly that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not only that, but look, Isaiah 48, 11, Isaiah, I think it's 42 and 8, uh, talks about the, uh, glory that uh, God has been exclusive um, because grammatically, contextually, uh, excuse me, grammatically and exegetically, uh, this glory is something that the Father had and shared with the Son. I mean, there's no question about that. I think we'd have to say, uh, upon that basis alone, it is divine glory. But when you look at verse 24, verse 22, um, you'll, you'll see that, you know, the petition to have that glory given to the disciples is immediately qualified with the statement um, that those whom you've given me may be with me where I am. Hmm. And I think that statement indicates, uh, or at least points to, the eternal state. Right. Um, to the point where the disciples will be with him. Yeah. And, you know, you get into the, the whole notion of, of glorification there. And so I think in a certain sense, that is, is what that is saying there, and obviously, you know, it's it's a straw man argument, really, because it has nothing to do with grammar or the exegetical argument that I uh, posed. But, right. Um, yeah, I just wanted to hit on that, uh, and I'm glad you brought it up as well. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the next clip that you asked me to play, uh, so we could comment on it. This has this is something uh, that James says about a divine mother. If we're going to use that familial language, I want to ask uh, Michael then, then why isn't uh, it required that there's also a mother? If the father has to have the son, the son has to have the father, and I believe that, then where is the divine mother? Where is she at? In fact, we could probably use the Aramaic version of Numa, which was rendered in the feminine. Okay, so what, what is it that you wanted to say uh, about that clip right there? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is that uh, I find that clip to be incredibly insulting. Um, hmm. Firstly, because um, the church at large has always rejected unscriptural uh, characterizations of God, uh, like the idea of incorporating a sort of feminine personage onto the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Um, and what's what what's even what even makes it more insulting is that recently, I have, either today or yesterday. Uh, James on his blog actually posted a, a video from a woman who claims to be a Trinitarian who claims that, I guess, that the Holy Spirit is somehow a, a woman or a mother, or a mother figure, anyway. So, yeah, I, I think this is just a ridiculous uh, argument, but I think what it does is it serves to reveal 
um, the surface level irrational logic that goes into um, James's thinking. Hmm. To be frank with you, and I and I don't say that to be rude or anything, but look, we're talking about God. We're not talking about man, and we need to understand that God is not like us. Right. We cannot constantly be pulling God down and putting him through our frame of reference and expecting him to meet our criteria. This is God. We bend our knee to him. Um, you know, I oftentimes hear, you know, Unitarians say, oh, the Trinity is, it's just as convoluted and just as difficult doctrine. And I, I happen not to, you know, I, I think it, it can be complicated. Sure. Um, especially philosophically, uh, there can be some complicated things, but I don't think it's hard to apprehend in as much as the scripture witness of it, but I don't expect God's highest revelation of himself to be something that I can learn um, in my, uh, you know, two-year-old Sunday school class. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad that there's some meat on those bones, and to, to suggest that Numa, you know, being a feminine word in the Greek, number one shows... Uh, although he did talk about humor, uh, the Hebrew there, uh, number one, it shows a, uh, a lack of understanding in how both the Hebrew and Greek languages uh, operate, uh, because a noun's um, gender doesn't really have anything to do with its meaning. I mean, for, for instance, the, the word uh, for sin um, is feminine, but the word for sinner is masculine. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of argument is just it's just ridiculous and and quite silly and, and it's really something that uh you know discredits james uh you know in my mind just discredits his credibility um and, and i think that was a low point in the debate yeah it was and you know something just dawned on me as we were talking um th this idea that if that the father-son language somehow demands a mother if that's true, and if and if he's you know going to say that um, Mary is the mother of Jesus, and so it meets that requirement, then what it does is it it, it makes um, uh, it would it would seem to require that the father fathered the son in the normal natural way, um, which would <laughs> you know it, what it would do is it would make it would make the oneness Pentecostal God the God of Mormonism. Because in, in the God of Mormonism, the father had sexual relations with Mary in the way that uh, a father would in order to uh, in order to uh, bear Jesus. Yeah, exactly. And, and that same type of ridiculous logic, anti-logic, really, um, is what he was getting hung up on with John one eighteen in his understanding of the word begotten. Hmm. Um, we need to allow the Bible to define terms for us. We cannot simply define them according to our own 2,000-year-plus removed uh, interpretations. I mean, it just doesn't work like that. And, um, you know, like he was trying to say, he's trying to make a, a distinction between the monogenes theos and God, Father, uh, Father theos, uh, you know, being the flesh of God and God transcendent and that kind of thing. And it was just, you know, it was along the same lines, the same illogical, fundamentalist type reading, where, you know, you're just you're just smuggling things in there, assuming things left and right that you can't really substantiate. Um, and I think you're right; it certainly did backfire on. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Well, let's move on to the next clip that you wanted to comment on. This is something that um, James, this, this is a place where James talks about verbs and actual infinites. God is an actual infinite. He doesn't need to act. I'm not worried about verbs in, in an atemporal state because God doesn't need to act. Because if God needs to share something with another person, then God is lacking in his character some way. And that's simply unfathomable as we consider God and his eternal nature. All right. So what did you want to what did you want to say about this this clip? Yeah. Um, you know, of course, this was uh, what I think to be a major portion of um, you know Mr. Anderson's argument hmm. uh, to refute the idea that there was a a relationship wrought in eternity between the persons of the Trinity, and I think there's a, a couple of problems. Firstly, the the debate obviously wasn't centered around. Um, that it was centered around the biblical text. And, you know, as I said before, I was determined at the start of this debate to stick to that text. Yeah. And so that's why I kind of wanted to talk about this here, uh, this philosophical objection. And, and you see what, what he did really was a category error because he approached, um, exegetical arguments, the arguments that I presented with philosophical objections. Yeah. And the two don't really mesh. Um, but to answer his um, argument that you cannot have in an atemporal state an interpersonal relationship, um, number one, who said that God is in an atemporal state? I mean, there are many philosophical, uh, uh, brilliant minds. I mean, people like, take for instance, Gray Kogel. Right. Uh, I think he's a, a very respected um apologist and, and I would even argue an expert in philosophy yep. who happens to believe in what I think is called the B theory of time wherein God actually subsists in time um, in not a, uh, a, a way that uh, uh, is sort of uh, demeaning to his eternality hmm. but uh, actually time has a bearing on him in some sense um, but that aside the idea that, look, my fallen notion of a philosophical concept um, somehow renders void <laughs> the word of God is ridiculous. Because yes. that is what he said. I don't care about the tense of verbs here because... And then he went on to give his reasoning. Well, no. I care about the tense of verbs because I care about what the Bible says and every single uh, verb ending every single tense, every single article, every single everything in that book is inspired and breathed out by God. Yeah. And I care about it very much so. And I'm not going to abandon it because of anyone's philosophical objections. Right. And so I think that really was a, uh, uh, you know, I, I didn't get the chance to, to really hit that head on, that little thing that he said there, but I think it was incredibly revealing uh, that so much of his objections that Trinity are based on um, philosophical concepts that uh, the Bible really doesn't speak to. Sure. Yeah, I, I definitely do think it reveals just that. But th there's another thing that I want to add. Um, you know, at the end of that clip, James said, if God needs to share something with another person, then God is lacking in his character in some way. Um, now, that, that's really important because I want, I want to listen to this clip of a question that I asked him during Q&A, and, and, then, and then I'm going to come back and comment on it. 
you would you agree that when in John four first John four eight and first John four sixteen where it says that God is love would would you agree that God has eternally been love in whatever sense John means it here? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. Now, now God knows nothing new. Okay. Now um, who who besides the Father Himself is the object of the Father's love? Uh, creation. Um, all of us. The Word. Okay. Um, the Bible, we can, we, we personally can fulfill, uh, loving each other simply by loving uh, ourselves, loving our neighbors as ourselves. So we have to love each other before we can love anyone outside of us. And so, I believe God has always been loving. I mean, just like God has always been a judge. Okay. But, but that's but, a very bias if you think about it. Okay. Only but God's the judge. Okay, but hold on a second, because you're saying that the Father loved creation. Um, yes. and, and my understanding would probably be that you would say that before creation, he was still aware that he was going to create creation, and that in that sense he was able to have loved creation from all eternity. But here's the thing. Doesn't that mean that in order to be expressing, in order to express law, love, something besides God the Father has to, has to exist or be planned to exist? And doesn't that make God the Father dependent upon something other than himself? No. Uh, God is completely in... Uh contained within himself he doesn't need anything um I, I, I believe it's god's will it was his decree to create he 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 created everything through christ um he was the the second adam so i mean i don't see god loving us was just as real before he created the cosmos as it is now in 2010 but saying it's just as real is, dif- is different from saying had he chosen never to create anything whom would he have loved well, I, I don't know, but I, I do know one thing. We can't make God, we can't parallel God's existence with our human existence. God doesn't need to love anyone. I absolutely agree. and That's that's, that's my opinion. No, I I agree with you. Now, I don't know if it came well, or if it came, if it came through very well. Did you catch the point that I was trying to make here and how it relates to the statement that James made at the end of the last clip that we played, that if God needs to share something with another person, then God is lacking in his character some way? Did, did that come through? Did, did you pick up on what it is that I was trying to get at? Yes, I, um, I have long believed that uh, God being loving is a very essential being uh, poses insurmountable problems to the Unitarian position, whether it be one that's Pentecostalism or, or whatever else. And I think that you did it, you know, oftentimes Q&A sessions and debates are the most profitable, annoying things. But you did a great job, particularly in bringing out this uh, very valuable ob- objection and question. And I think it, it, it just exemplified his complete consistency. Hmm. Um, and I think it, you know, really demonstrated that he cannot hang with the biblical text. The fact that God is love. I mean, look, in Titus uh, 1, 1 and 2, and 2 Timothy 1, I think it's 8 through 9, talks about there, there being a promise made between the Father and the Son that the Son would save the elect uh, by means of, um, uh, you know, of, of coming uh, the way he did. Hmm. Um there definitely was a pre-existent relationship going on. Uh, there's there's all kinds of grounds for basis for that in the scriptures, and I think it bears it out. And I think obviously uh, James could not uh, cope with that reality. And ultimately, just like Islam, just like the Unitarians, just like every other non-Trinitarian god, um, you have a god that is inevitably reliant on uh, some facet of creation. To hold itself up. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you, you understood. I, I wasn't sure that it came through very well. Let, let's play the next clip that you wanted to comment on. This is something that James said about Hebrews 1.3. In these last days, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. If you have your Bible out, circle the word being, because most translations circle uh, translated that as person for quite a while. Uh, in fact, there is no plural persons ever mentioned, but it uses the word being. I want Michael to understand what that means and imports to Trinitarian theology. Jesus was the exact imprint of God's very being. It doesn't say nature. The Greek word there is hypostasis, and that can mean the substance, the underlying, the being of it. And so if Jesus is the imprint of his God's being, but yet God's being consists of three persons, um, then why is Jesus only one person? So how about it, Mike? How is it that uh, that uh, Jesus can be the imprint of God's being and yet not be three? Well, again, I, I, the reason why I wanted uh, to bring this up is because I think it'd be very useful to um, your listeners because this is a very common objection that Unitarians bring up, and I, I've heard this one so many times. Uh, firstly, there's the fallacy of equivocation made by James here and that he assumes that the word God can only mean triune God. Hmm. It can only be speaking of God um, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Obviously, that is not true. The appellation of God can refer to the Father, or the Son, or the Spirit in different ways and at different times, or it can refer to all three, or it could refer to something other than the one true God. Hmm. Uh, someone other. Uh, Satan, of course, is called the God of this world, and in sort of a thematic uh, sense. What will you have in Hebrews chapter 1? And, and by the way, it's very interesting, um, if you remember what he said just before that long ago, and that many times and in many ways God spoke to us, to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by what he said, a son. No, no, no. Um, I believe the word son there, uyas, is, is in the genitive case, by his son. Hmm. Didn't say a son, and I think uh, that argument from silence uh, <laughs> that he was trying to make there was uh, was at first I didn't even know what he was talking about until I went back and listened to it, and yeah, uh, pretty revealing what lengths he's willing to go to there. But um, the word being, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word's power. Um, the word God there is obviously talking about God the Father, the person of God the Father. Hmm. And he is the exact imprint of his nature, or is how the ESV renders it. It's also how I believe the NASB and countless other translations render it. It doesn't say the person, he is the radiance of the triune God. Hmm. It doesn't do it. The, the context isn't about Father, Son, and Spirit. The context is about the, the relationship between the Father and Son and the supremacy of the Son. Right. And what you have there is, um, is a text that is speaking about the Son being in the likeness of the exact imprint of the nature, the substance, the essence of the Father. Yeah. Um, and so obviously, these very learned scholars from the NASBA, uh, NASB rather, translation committee, the ESV translation committee, the various other uh, groups out there that do scholarly translation work are not wrong. Right. <laughs> Because there are countless translations that render it this way, and rightly so. Um, and there have even been Unitarians who, who identify the fact that 
again, this is talking about the person of God the Father and, and not anything else. So I think that was really a, uh, a fallacious argument, but uh, nothing that Trinitarian people need to be confused or worry about. Um, and it is one that um, the more learned Unitarian would, would bring up to try to, uh, to try to throw in our way. But um, what's interesting is in that same text, you have the Son as distinct from the Father upholding the universe by the word of his power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and there's no time frame given to that. Right. Um, so you have this incredibly divine power um, that the Son executes as distinct from the Father, and yet we're going to get hung up on uh, a fallacious implication of the word. Uh, yeah, it, it really it really amazes me when when somebody like James would try to come to Hebrews one because what does Hebrews what does the author of Hebrews say in verse ten? You speaking of the Father speaking to the Son, you Yahweh in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. So this is some this is a quote from the Old Testament and what the author of Hebrews is saying is that this is the Father saying this about the Son. The Father is calling the Son Yahweh. I, I just I, it amazes me. Yeah, I mean that was a that was a huge. Uh, point of my main argument initially, and it was never once addressed. It was never mentioned. It was never said anything. You know, James never said anything about it in passing. <laughs> I'd really like him to answer that question. Uh, you know, that was a, a big part of my main argument, and it was never even touched upon, and it's very revealing. Yeah. Um, so. Well, let's move on to the next clip that you wanted to comment on. This is uh, some comments that James made about John 1 1. The Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. N-R-K, in the beginning, harkens back to Genesis 1 and 1. Herman Ritterbos, the Gospel according to John, will, will, will confirm that. And the reason I mention authorities, Mike, is not is because I'm not an authority. I need authority, so I do appeal to them for a reason. But Mike said that there, the Word was with God as two personal beings, Two personal beings. And think of this, ladies and gentlemen. These two personal beings are in loving, communicating relationship before the world began. This is nonsense language. Mike has not and cannot explain this. He will not explain it. You cannot try to use the economic trinity to explain the ontological trinity because it will fail. But you have to do that. And, and if you try to explain your economic trinity, that is God experienced as three in time and space, with the with your ontological trinity, which is supposed to be uh, in, the, in the nature and the being of God, uh, how, how does that work? All right. So what are your thoughts on this clip? Yeah. Uh, the first thing I wanted to point out is, again, he's approaching something exegetical with something philosophical. And I think what he's doing is he's crossing categories there, and I think on that point it's fallacious, uh, his argument. Second thing I wanted to say was, obviously, I said something that I did not mean to say. I did not mean <laughs> to say that uh, we're dealing with two uh, divine personal beings. No, not at all. God is one being, one indivisible being who eternally exists in three persons. Right. Um, so for him to capitalize on that, okay, whatever. But that aside, um, there was a reason why I decided not to go to John 1-1. And I, the reason was because so many uh, debates that I've heard between Oneness Pentecostals and Trinitarians has spent insurmountable amounts of time dealing with the role of John. Yeah. And so I wanted to demonstrate in this debate to the brethren that, look, we're just not going to be dealing with one text here. 
we're, we're going to be demonstrating from the whole counsel of God that we can defend our doctrine. And, and that's one of the reasons why I did go to Hebrews. Um, but um, in Archaean Halagos, um, he's ta- saying that this uh, goes back to Genesis 1-1. Well, the text is obviously reminiscent of Genesis 1-1. Um, similar construction, uh, grammatically, um, but what we see there is is the uh, word "ain" en in English translated English, and that is the word "was" in English. Hmm. Um, and what it indicates is that the Lagos was already existing in the beginning. That you know, we it, wherever you want to put that beginning on the scale of time, the Lagos was before it. Yeah. Um, and so this speaks of an eternal world word, uh, not simply some one or something in, in James's perspective that was, you know, back in Genesis. And I think, um, you know, somebody would have to ask themselves, you know, who's a one is Pentecostal. It's kind of obvious what God fearing person could not think that God's plan or, or, reason or wisdom or whatever isn't eternal with God. It's kind of uh, ridiculously redundant. But not only that, the second clause um, combined with the third clause is just so clear. Yeah. Um, You know, and I'm not going to make a mountain out of a molehill with the the preposition there, pros, um, other than to say that, look, it is the root word for face in Greek, <laughs> uh, lexically, it can talk about a uh, a face to face reality, as as uh, Robertson puts it, um, and there are lots of examples of that. Um, as I mentioned before, my my friend uh, Doctor Edward Dalcourt has documented every single time the phrase prostantheon um, has been used in the Bible, and I think it was about twenty four times. Wow. And of the 24 times, when there are two people uh, in view, that relationship is an intimate one. Now, you might say, well, how do we know there's two people in view here? Isn't that smuggling in the Trinity? Well, no, because the Word is said to be God in the third clause. And if the Word is said to be God in the third clause, then we know at minimum the Word is personal. <laughs> yeah. So we have to be dealing with two persons. Uh it's just a matter of when do those two persons exist with one another. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think that w- that was something that James didn't quite understand uh, when I later uh, talked about that. Yeah. Okay, well, let's play another clip uh, where James talks about the Gospel of John. This is the next clip that you wanted to comment on. Uh, Mike here is wanting to interpret uh, with God um, or was God as a qualitative sense. Surely he doesn't mean that's exclusively qualitative. Um, D.A. Carson, a uh, commentarian, very smart, very intelligent, he says that uh, with was God, the word was God should be interpreted as definite, as a definite force. Um, D.A. Wallace, in his book, Greek Grammar Brown the Basics, says that the definite force is grammatically possible. But then he goes on to explain it using his other other surrounding verses. But I think that is where the Trinitarian interpretation comes in. Um, but the thought in, in the in the theology of Israel and early Judaism was never of wisdom 
as separate beings or, or logos as separate beings from God, but they were able to be conceived or, or independent personalities, but they were the presence of God in the world, God himself acting upon the world. So I'm not saying the spirit or the word are impersonal uh, and that they're just some static force. They are God himself moving and acting, and so they are personal. Okay, so your thoughts on this clip? Yeah, um, the first thing I wanted to say was that um, when we look at the Gospel of John, um, unlike the synoptics, John is pleased to use uh, metaphorical language for the person of the Son of God. I mean, he calls him the bread, the door, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, the life. I mean, the the text is just replete with these sort of metaphorical characterizations. Hmm. And so it's not a stretch of the imagination for the apostle to take a word like logos, which is already completely pregnant with meaning, especially in that place in that time, uh, and pour a person into it. Uh, it, it you know, it's, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to, to see that um, as a possibility even, uh, which I think is, you know, most uh, scholars I think would agree that that is in fact what has been done. Um, but the fact that he went to D.A. Carson's commentary, a commentary which I have happen to have, uh, a famous commentary, his uh, Pillar Commentary on John, uh, which I would highly recommend, it's incredibly useful, uh, has been one of those few books that really has changed my life, which <laughs> uh, is a very good commentary on John, but um, he actually doesn't quote it properly. And as I went back and sort of looked at some of the quotes he hews, um, some of the stuff I have in my own uh, library, and I have a very limited library, but some of the other stuff I try to track down in the Internet, and I found that some of it was third-party stuff that wasn't quite quoted as closely as I would have quoted it. And, uh, just to say that, but yeah, D.A. Carson about, talks about it not being, um, not being translated definitely, but understood as having a definite force to it. So that hmm. third clause, and the word was God, not the word was the God, because that would be definite, but to be understood as, um, having a definite force, meaning that God, uh, that the word is as God is, hmm. uh, is, is the way it is to be understood, or the, the word is as to his nature exactly, or everything that God is, or everything that God is, so too is the Logos. And there's even translations that sort of bring that out a little better. To make that clause uh, definite is grammatically untenable. Uh, and there's a reason why nobody has ever translated it that way. Firstly, it's obviously... Not that way in the Greek. It's an Arthur's predicate nominative. It actually says in the Greek, Theos, uh, Kai Theos, and Halagos. Um, in Greek, I, I know that you have studied Greek a bit. I, I don't know how far. Uh, very, very little. In Greek, word order doesn't necessarily have to do a lot with uh, the meaning of sentences and clauses. But what word order can be utilized for is for emphasis for various things. Hmm. And so what John did here is he placed um, the word theos, the word for God, uh, in the beginning of this clause, even though John 1, 1, and 2 are telling us about the logos. And so that means to say that 
John is trying to tell us something very specific about the Lagos. And he does that by saying, Hi, Theos. Theos without the article. And Halagos. And of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses um, have to, uh, you know, come up with a, uh, a very wide and very uh, innovative and very uh, ridiculous reasons to put the indefinite article there. Right. Uh, but look, I mean... The other thing I wanted to say was, if you want to say that, and, and this might be helpful to your listeners um, who maybe do get into the grammar, if you want to say that the third clause is definite or should be translated definitely, then you would have to say that other constructions in the Bible um, that are very similar, that use an anarchist uh, uh, theos, um, should be convertible too. Like one text that you mentioned was First John four sixteen, God is love. Hmm. Well, if we're going to say that, um, uh, and the word was God, it can be convertible because if it was definite, it could be convertible. Uh, God was the word. Um, then we better prepare, be prepared to say that love is God, in much as God is love. Hmm. I mean, it cuts both ways, yeah. and I don't think that James um, has thought this out through enough to consider the ramifications and uh, implications of, of what he's trying to, to argue for. Uh, not only that, but look, can anyone possibly walk away with a modalistic understanding of God from the prologue of John? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I just don't see how a fair reading of the, of the text will give you that. And there are some other people who have, who have tried, but to no avail. I mean, come on, it's just so clear. And really, I mean, it's just a testimony of the sufficiency clarity of the word of god uh, just remarkable yeah well so um i want to follow up though uh on this i've got a, i know you said you didn't want to make a mountain out of a molehill but i i, I want to play this clip um where you pressed james on john 1 1 and then I, I have something to say about it now you just told us that the logos is personal how then can you tell us that the logos is an unexpressed thought and also say that the logos is personal as these are obviously self-contradictory assertions well, I wouldn't say my words. Uh, my words are. An, I, I did say that, but I, I think I did uh, define logos uh, even more in that article. I think that's like a thirty-page article. Um, however, the word is personal uh, by the very fact that it is uh, God Himself um, okay. acting and moving among us. That's what I would say. So the the word is an unexpressed thought, but it is also God Himself. No, it's not an unexpressed thought. It's uh, actually the word there is can mean unexpressed and expressed thought. But this is um, this is the self-expression of God. It's an expression of God. Now, I think that what might have been lost in some listeners is that basically what James is saying is that the word isn't God. It's God's thought or activity. Uh, he wanted to say that the word is personal, and he tried to steer clear of the phrase unexpressed thought. But nevertheless, his point was that the word is the unexpressed or expressed thought or activity of God. So it seems to me like what James is saying is that somehow the thought or activity of God is God himself and is somehow with God himself. That, that what John is saying is in the beginning was the thought or activity of God, and the thought or activity of God was with God, and the thought or activity of God was God. Now, <laughs> is this really somehow more sensible than the Trinitarian language that that elsewhere in this debate he called nonsense language? No, not at all, because number one, it, it automatically assumes that the word logos can be used metaphorically of a person. Hmm. Um, and as I said before, 
you know, John has done that a multiplicity of times in, in the in the gospel. The second thing is, um, look, he could say that, yeah, it has to do with the thought or activity of God, uh, but in writing what he has said repeatedly, and what David Bernard has said, and and uh, various other of uh, the more prolific oneness authors have said, was that the word, the Lagos, was the um, the plan, uh, the unexpressed plan that was definite in the foreknowledge of God, of the Son and his redemptive purpose. And that resided in the mind of God. That is the consistent oneness refrain that I've read from, from, from just about everyone I've read, including James. And in that 21-page article that he wrote, uh, pre-existing Christology in certain passages, he reiterated that over and over and over again. Hmm. He didn't ever come to a point where he t- started talking about the fact that uh, he now believes, oh, all of a sudden it's now the expressed... Well, that's something new that he was introducing right on the spot, and I think he was doing that to get out of the corner that he was you know, basically put himself in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, and, and the point that I'm really trying to get at here is whether it's expressed or unexpressed, the point is, is that he wants to somehow say that the activity of God is God himself and is, and at the same time is with God himself and that this is somehow makes more sense than, uh, than what we believe. Yeah, ex- you're exactly right. You're exactly right. It, it, it's just ridiculous and very inconsistent. And yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's does not hold to a fair reading of the text. And, um, it's basically, you know, it's, it's basically playing shadow games with the text to protect the tradition and it shows. And it's unfortunate, but uh, yeah, I think you're exactly right on that. Okay. Well, let's play the last clip that you had sent me, and then we'll move into a few that I've got. Um, this is a clip where James mentions a debate that you had uh, regarding Colossians 2.9. One deity. Now, I did notice in his bait, uh, Burgos's debate with Sullivan that he implied that Colossians 2 and 9 shows that this is a different deity than that of the Father. A different deity. Ladies and gentlemen, how many deities do we have? Okay, so what were your thoughts on this clip? Yeah, um, why don't I just uh, read Colossians 2.9. Um, it says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Um, and he, what he says is, I had a uh, debate with a fellow by the name of Pastor Sullivan and one is Pentecostal. And, you know, the assertion that he makes there is completely false. Um, I'm a Trinitarian as you know, Chris, and as I'm sure uh, your listeners know, we are monotheists. Yes. There is no other deity than the one true deity that eternally exists as God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and who are uh, co-equal in that deity. Now, um, when we look at Colossians 2.9, I, I want to make it real clear to the one that's Pentecostal, if there's any that happen to list this, that text does not simply tell us that there is a deity dwelling, indwelling, in other words, in the person of the Son. That's not what that text is telling us. Right. What it's telling us is, on a grammatical level, it's telling us that the Son is deity existing as flesh, as a human person. Yeah. Um, totally blows the idea of a non eternal son out of the water because we have deity existing as flesh and yet communicating 
in subject-object dialogue with uh, uh, another person in the Godhead. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that was a uh, a very uh, dubious uh, thing for him to say. And, and if anyone could read that debate, it is documented on, on the website. And um, that's certainly something I would never, ever say. Uh, so it's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. Well, now there's something on, about this passage in Colossians two nine that bring that that brings up a an objection that many Trinitarians have to oneness theology, and, and I've never quite understood this. But um, you know, the, the passage says, "In Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form." And what I've been told, what many Trinitarians have said, is that oneness theology uh, has a real problem. It, it, it results in something that's not a true incarnation. It's the God the Father dwelling in the Son. Um, have you heard anything uh, along these lines? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I have found that you basically have two kinds of oneness Pentecostals, those who portray that exact same thing, what you just said, that really the, the only difference between me and you and the Son is that the Son has the Father and Spirit dwelling in him by no measure. Hmm. Um, there are those oneness Pentecostals, uh, that fellow Manuel um, is one of those kinds of types of people, but then there are the other ones who try to try to stick to the idea of the deity of the Son um, consistently, but it's extremely hard to do because their theology does not allow it. You cannot have a unipersonal God and have God the Son and God the Father communicating. It just doesn't work out. Right. And so ultimately, I think they're they're stuck with. Repeating the mantra, God is manifest in flesh, and, and God is, uh, you know, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and there being an ambiguity there that they're comfortable with, yeah, um, that they they sort of appreciate <laughs> that ambiguity. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. Um, their view of the incarnation in many ways, and according to many people, uh, uh, just doesn't jive with the text. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, now I had a, I had several more clips prepared, but this has gone on longer than than I'd li than I had planned, uh, and it's totally okay. I'll I'll split this into two episodes, but um, there are uh, just three more that I that I want to play before we wrap up. Um, and this first one is a question that James asked you about the Old Testament patriarchs and prophets. Did the Old Testament prophets, patriarchs, such as Abraham, did they believe? Did they die believing in a Trinity? I would say that the Old Testament patriarchs were privy only to the revelation that was provided to them. Uh, we see that the Bible is a progressive revelation, that the totality of God's character and nature was not delivered in Genesis or in a period during the Old Testament, but rather it was delivered from Genesis to Revelation. And so I wouldn't expect them to believe in a New Testament revelation because it was never given to them. So the reason I wanted to play this clip, you know, we talked in, in the beginning of this discussion about how there were uh, profound hints in the Old Testament of the Trinity that, that you could have gone to and that you had chosen not to, which which is totally fine. Um, and, and I definitely agreed with your answer that I, I don't think that the uh, Old Testament prophets and patriarchs believed or understood God to be a Trinity per se. I don't think that the revelation had yet been complete enough to reveal that. However, um, 
there are some passages that I think are, are really, uh, really profound. Like you said, profound hints. Genesis 126 depicts God as saying, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. You know, when as Pentecostals like Jason Dooley have tried to say, well, there's, well, maybe, maybe it was somebody else. But anyway, they've tried to say, well, the similar language is used about Adam and Eve. You know, let us create man in man. He created man and woman. Well, yeah, but there's two of them there, you know, so it doesn't really help them. You know, and then in, in uh, Genesis 3.22, the man has become like one of us. And in Genesis 11, and seven, God says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language. Um, you know, and then of course we've got, uh, in, uh, in the account of Sodom and Gomorrah in, in that passage, we have Yahweh on earth raining down fire and brimstone from Yahweh in heaven, you know, two, two people there that are, that are the one God Yahweh. So, so, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Do, do you, do you see these as profoundly hinting toward the Trinity as I do? Yeah. I see when you're, when you're in a debate, you, you know, you, you obviously have to sort of whittle down your answer to be as concise and as, um, I don't know, as, as for the sake of brevity, I, I think I put it that way, but I did carry the sentiment that you just expressed. And I think, yeah, Genesis 19.24 and the plural pronouns, uh, whether or not, um, you know, of course, Moses wrote uh, Genesis to whether or not uh, Abraham knew about the plural pronouns. By the way, plural pronouns. Take notice, uh, Unitarians, because they do exist, <laughs> and you cannot um, you cannot explain them away by saying they're angels, because the antecedent is God there. Right. And um, not only that, uh, the one of their favorite arguments is uh, the poetic device known as plural majesty. Right. Um, which actually is a 13th century Anglo-Saxon invention. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's no evidence of it having existed before that. Um, so that's really a, an argument from silence. But, um, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think that, um, you know, look, when we say that Abraham believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because we believe that is the Trinity, I do believe in a sense that Abraham believed in the triune God. Yeah. Now, do I believe that he understood the identity of the monogamous Theos, the Lord of glory, the glorious one, and that he was in an interpersonal relationship with his father, that his father sent him to be the sacrifice, the, the, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world and so forth? No. No. Obviously not. And and I think that James wanted to uh, wanted me to come out and say that or something like that. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think when we look at uh, some of the um, older uh, Jewish rabbinical commentaries on some of these very curious texts, like Isaiah 48, like uh, some of the texts in Genesis that you cited, like Amos chapter 4, and some of the other places, um, yeah, I mean, there's uh, some very interesting uh, commentaries uh, from Jews, from early Jews, uh, about those texts. And there are also some other text that used plural uh, nouns. Uh, there's a text in, uh, in two texts in Ecclesiastes that speak of makers and creators and in reference to God. Hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of little dynamics that I think would lead uh, lead a, a monotheistic Jew to not make that assumption uh, that God is truly unitarian. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay, well, here's the next clip that I want to play. Um, this is 
this is going to be a long one, but I want our listeners to hear the whole interchange um, because I think this is one of the most uh, powerful uh, arguments that, that you made in the, in the cross-examination period, indeed in the whole debate. I, I think that you really backed James into a corner that he couldn't escape from, and, and he really revealed the inconsistency of his position and his inability to really address the text. So, um, so yeah, let's listen to this clip. So if no one has seen God the Father, as John 1.18 and John 6.46 states, who did these people see? They, they saw the manifestation of God that was permanent and perfect in Jesus Christ. They didn't see the, the actual substance of God. Um, God appeared to many people in the Old Testament, including in Genesis 18. He appeared to Abraham and Sarah, the Lord, Yahweh, did. Um, and theophanies, but those were temporary manifestations, whereas in Jesus, God himself, in the flesh, in my opinion, uh, he is God in human form. So we do see God in that sense. We don't see the, the absolute essence of God. Uh, but Jesus is declaring him. Uh, he has made him known. He has explained him. He has told him out. Um, okay, I understand. So, but these people, uh, uh, scripture tells us, have seen God. Uh, Isaiah says, I saw Jehovah high and lifted up in the temple. Did he yeah. see Jehovah or did he not see Jehovah? And Isaiah 6 and 10? Uh, 6 1 and, or okay. 6 5, whichever you prefer. Yeah, yes, he did see Jehovah. He saw Yahweh. Okay, I, I believe thank that. you. Thank you. Um, with that in mind, in John 12, after mm -hmm. a quotation from Isaiah 6, John says of the Son in verses 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, speaking of the Son. According to John, who did Isaiah see? Um, according to John or Isaiah, what would you say? According to yeah. John, it was Christ. John says it's Christ. Yeah, I, okay. Uh, so you would say Christ meaning the Son? Uh, yes, sure would. The, okay, son is so, the Son is Yahweh. Right, so you're saying that the Yahweh that Isaiah saw was the Son, right? Yes, and that, in fact, there's no room for any other person to be seated around that throne, I would say, based upon the text. Yeah, okay, uh, thank you. And so, because the Scripture tells us that no one has ever seen the Father, and yet we see many times, as I said, people have seen God, who did these people see, whether it was in a vision or not in a vision, as Isaiah saw? Um, I think what Isaiah might have seen it was would, would have been a vision. It could have been the glory of God. Um, he could have some type of vision, a prophetic vision. I, I doubt it was literal. Um, it okay. says it says that the, whose train filled the temple. So whoever it was sitting on that one throne, that one person had a robe that filled the temple, okay. which would so, leave room for anyone else. Uh, numbers. Chapter 12, verses 6 through 8 says, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. According to John 1.18, no one has seen the Father. Who did Moses see? Who did Isaiah see? Uh, I would say he saw Jesus. Sitting on the throne. I mean, that Jesus, we don't believe, one of the Pentecostals believe that Jesus uh, is uh, eternally existent. He did so exist. They saw the Son. Yes. They saw that the, the Son is the Yahweh, the Father is the Son, Isaiah 96. Right, right. So if they 
<clears throat> you 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 had. I'm sex. saying I'm saying I'm telling you that Christ and Yahweh are the same. But okay, but no one, if if they were the same though, and no one has seen the Father, how can that statement be true? Uh, because as John one eighteen says, John one and eighteen creates the distinction that Trinitarians are and Oneness Pentecostals have been battling over. It says the unique God. The subject-object distinction there is between spirit and flesh, God and humanness. That's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing God chose to to to, to come uh, reconcile the world through. His I'm son. not talking about the monogenes theos. I'm just talking about the fact that Scripture is replete with verses that tell us that no one has seen the Father. Sure, yet, no one has seen God, right? But I'm not. I'm saying that that means right. uh, we haven't seen the Father. We haven't seen God's pure divine essence. That's why the one seated upon the throne will be Jesus, because He is the image, the image creature. Now, I wanted to play this because I think you made the argument very well. In the New Testament, it says nobody has seen the Father, and yet we have replete with examples in the Old Testament of people who saw God, and, and not just in a vision. You know, we could, we could, we could. We could understand that uh, James saying that they saw the sun if they saw the sun in a prophetic vision, but that wasn't the case with Moses. He interacted with personally, face to face. The text says, with God, and so James is forced to admit that Moses inter interfaced with God the Son, with with the Son, um, and yet, you know, this debate was about whether or not the Son preexisted. Well, if they interacted with the Son prior to his incarnation. You know, I, I don't. I was amazed that he could answer this way. I, I don't. I don't. I just, quite frankly, don't understand how he could hold his position. Yeah, what what James is doing is he's he's sort of uh, exposing, uh, I think, a little bit reluctantly, some of his more crass, modalistic uh, foundations. Um, and I think that you know, it was it was a little bit frustrating for me because I wanted to draw him out a little bit more than I. I could, but unfortunately, the time ran out right when I was about to hit the nail on the head. But, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think the problem is number one, he kept running to John one eighteen to shelter his his understanding that the monogenes theos refers to God in human flesh, and the Father refers to God's pure divine essence. Hmm. I don't think anyone reading that text would come away with that conclusion. Right. That text simply says. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Um, there's nothing there about whether or not uh, this is talking about God in flesh or God not in flesh. No, it uses the word theos, God, monogenes, theos. Uh, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, not the only God in human flesh who is at the Father's side. Yeah. Um, and as he said, he doesn't believe in divine flesh, so um, that's not a possibility for him. But yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, unfortunately, I was not able to get him to the point of talking about, okay, you say that these people saw the sun. Now, are you saying that the sun um, didn't exist with the father at that time or that the father ceased existing at that time? Or, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just it's, the whole thing was just bankrupt on his part. Yeah, it, it just really was. And, and I don't think he could make heads or tails of it, nor any. When this kind of gospel, really. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, this last clip, I'm going to transition from what I think was the most powerful uh, argument that you gave to what I think was the most important statement that you made. 
And yet, at the same time, I think many listeners uh, who aren't familiar with oneness Pentecostalism are going to, you know, might have heard this and wondered why it was, given what the debate proposition was, why it was that you said what we're about to listen to right now. This was a, this was at the very end of your closing argument. Let, let's give it a listen. And so, oneness Pentecostalism has gotten the identity of God wrong. Why would anybody place in any any way any hope in the oneness Pentecostal gospel? Salvation is not of works of any kind. Salvation of, is of the Lord. And the sole means of salvation is repentance and faith in the person and work of the Son of God. Being baptized will no more save a sinner than a spider web will stop a falling rock. Amen. But if we ourselves cast uh, ourselves on the mercy of God and the perfect work of the Son of God... And we come to the Almighty God, bringing an empty hand of faith. He is faithful and just to redeem us from our sin, and in His place give us the very righteousness of the Son of God. The very Son of God who, prior to the Incarnation, was simply a thought. One minute left. It is not our obedience to the command of baptism that God uses to redeem. No, it is Christ's obedience. It is Christ's perfect righteousness. That is the sole means of redemption by faith alone. And so in closing, I, 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 I pray that my oneness friends will, will come to the true and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ uh, as he is the eternal Son of God. Now, for those, like I said, listeners who may not be familiar with oneness Pentecostalism, they know that the debate proposition was, did the Father, or did the Son pre-exist with the Father before his incarnation? So what did this last part of your closing argument have to do with the debate? Um, Chris, if you remember, the first time we had talked about this topic was on your program uh, a number of months ago, hmm. way back when. And I had said to you that I believe apologetics to be, in a way, long-hand evangelism. Yeah. And so I, I know that JN is uh, a prolific blogger, uh, someone who is speaks at uh, some of these popular oneness Pentecostal theological uh uh, conferences and things, and I know that he's a, a person whom they seem to respect, and so I, I knew that there would be a chance that Oneness Pentecostals would be uh, listening to the debate and, and hearing our side, as it were. And so I felt compelled to make an evangelistic call, um, and in doing so, try to knock out some of the stumbling blocks that I know exist in uh, in the Oneness tradition uh, mainly baptismal regeneration. Yeah. The understanding that baptism is a requirement of salvation. Right. And uh, that day I had read through uh, Romans 4 and read the words that uh, just, you know, when when everything falls apart, I I find such uh, strength and encouragement in these words. Paul says, uh, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. And to the one that does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Yeah. Just as David also speaks of the one, of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from worship. I, I just wanted to make an evangelistic plea. And, um, you know, I, I knew that it might be falling in ears, but, uh, my, my prayer was that, uh, uh, God would sovereignly do work there. 
Yeah, definitely. You know, I I think I've heard James White say that it's it's or maybe it was somebody else, but that it, that it's important to include uh, the gospel message in every debate because that's really you know uh, the most important thing. But but I think that what you did here was was even more additionally valuable because a lot of the people that were listening that aren't familiar with the fact that oneness Pentecostals preach a uh, salvation by works gospel. Um, I think it's important for them to know what it is that they are signing up for if they find the oneness Pentecostal view of God compelling. In other words, if if, if they think that the oneness uh, that the oneness explanation of um, God that we've heard in the in the debate is compelling, which I can't imagine. But even if, but if they did, what I like about what you did is that you let them know. Look, you're going to be there's baggage that comes along with this that you need to understand. You know, is going to come along with accepting that view. So, yeah, I, I thought it was great that you ended this in this way. I thought it was, like I said, the, the last clip that we played was a more powerful argument, but I think this is one of the most important, if not the most important statement uh, that you made in the whole debate. Yeah, it cuts both ways. It indeed cuts both ways. You're exactly right. And I, I think that's what I tried to say. Hey, look, if you're going to, if you, if you see here that the oneness doctrine of God is bankrupt, then why on earth would you believe in their gospel? Um, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, you're going to get cheese out of the toilet bowl. You know, it's not a good idea. You know, and I hate to use that kind of uh, terminology, but it, it's, it's you know, it, it's, it's a terrifying thing to think that there are people who probably are in oneness churches who probably see some of the obvious question begging and inconsistency, but say, well, you know, I, I do believe in the gospel. Well... Is it the right gospel? Yeah. There are apparently false gospels out there. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, uh, let, let's wrap up. Is there anything? Uh, is there any closing, you know, thought that you that you want to um, that you want to share with us before before I let you go? Um. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know what, Chris? I'd like to thank you again. I, I know that this is something that requires a lot of effort, a lot of preparation, a lot of thought consideration and so i i appreciate that and on behalf of your listeners i'm sure um you know let me let me just say thanks and in addition to that you know um to the to the people that that may listen to this if if you do have any questions about the doctrine of the trinity the doctrine of god um if you have any questions that weren't addressed in in you know this little course modern thing or the debate itself feel free to contact me i'm very accessible and I'd be happy to reiterate things or talk to you about things, whether it be baptism, whether it be the doctrine of God or anything else. Yeah. Well, no need to thank me. Um, uh, the work is well well worth it. I enjoy it. I thank you for being willing to come on my show and um, participate in this debate and, and talk with me, which I'm looking forward to doing again at, you know, in an episode in the future. So thanks again, and uh, you know, have a good night. Hey, Chris. Have a good one. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I know that I did, and at the same time, it's a big relief to finally get it out the door. The post-production was really difficult. Uh, still, nobody's been able to tell what it is that happened, um, technically speaking, that, that caused me to have to mask it with post-production. If you can figure that out, email me at theapologetics at hotmail.com, and you know, maybe I'll uh, give you a prize. Probably not. <laughs> anyway, uh, next up, I think that we're going to be doing part two on Israelology with my friend David Jarislow. So, uh, yeah, I hope you'll stay tuned for that and upcoming episodes of the podcast. Until then.